0: Welcome to WP Can's Mic Check, which comes to you uh, every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. just before the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Richard Hill. I'm very glad to be here this week. Mic Check is a show which deals with global, national, and regional issues and their effect on our local communities. And uh, each week there's a different host with a different issue. This is the second Sunday of the month, and that is my slot, so I'm here today. And our topic today is the condition of prisoners in Connecticut state prisoners regarding COVID 19, the changes that have happened since the virus began uh, in earnest back in uh, early March. And we're going to have a discussion about this situation with Dan Barrett, who is the legal director of the Connecticut ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining today.
1: No problem. Good to be here, and hello to the Park City.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, we had you here about uh, 10, 10, 11 months ago to talk about this situation, and at that time the ACLU had filed a lawsuit against uh, the governor and the director of corrections, tried to decarcerate a large portion of the prison population to mitigate the problem of the possibility of rapid spread of COVID-19 in that Petri dish that is our um, prison system in Connecticut. So we're going to talk today about how that situation evolved since then, not just in terms of the lawsuit, but also in terms of the actual COVID-19 infection rate in the prisons. But to begin, why don't you give us a short history of what happened with that lawsuit and the subsequent uh, remedies that were put in place back on on july 20th of this year of last year i should say to try to come to some kind of a compromise
1: sure well as you recall and it it does seem like you and i spoke uh, uh a year ago i think it was only in march um or or april but um you know when the pandemic came to Connecticut effectively nothing was being done in the prisons and and at the time Connecticut had about um 10 or 11,000 people under lock and key every day and and yet nothing was being done there was no testing there were no masks it the department of correction was uh, uh pretending as if this thing wasn't going to happen and so when we filed suit we were looking for you know, some very important things to start happening immediately, you know, masks being distributed, being available, sanitation measures, things like that. And the a couple of things happened along the way. Um, one, the, the parties began to talk about resolving the suit, um, which was good because it seemed like the Department of Correction realized that it, it had some things that it needed to do. Um, and the second is that across the country, um, the, the law got pretty bad and courts you know we were one of the few suits to pass the first stage you know the so-called motion to dismiss phase of a case and courts largely seemed content with letting people who were incarcerated um, kind of suffer the ravages of the virus so the case uh, entered into a settlement agreement it was approved by the district judge in um, July early July and then those measures that we agreed upon began to take place inside the walls, which, which helped. And what also helped was, as everyone else on the outside saw, the infection rate slowed over the summer. And so just as, you know, outside DOC was able to um, get somewhat of a breather, the infection rate dropped. Uh, but now, just as on the outside, as we're entering into this, you know, third wave um, the infection rate is quite bad at certain facilities, and so things are getting um, pretty pretty grim inside. Now, the settlement agreement that resolved the lawsuit, um, by its terms, you know, it was a contentious negotiation, and the parties agreed that the settlement would end on December 31st, uh, 2020. So that's when it ended. And so right now, DOC is... Um, kind of in the spotlight. DOC and Governor Lamont uh, have got to show the world what they're doing um, to prevent further spread because it's, it's, you know, we're still very much in danger.
0: Why don't you describe some of the terms or the most important terms of that settlement agreement? How would it have mitigated the, the threat of the spread of the virus in the prisons, both to incarcerated people, but also to the staff in the prisons who could and do leave those prisons every day and uh, potentially take the virus back to their families and communities.
1: Yeah, you bet. that, and, and that's a great point. There are many people, not not just the staff, but there's contractors, you know, maintenance people, other folks that come in and out. So um, I think even for listeners who don't sympathize with incarcerated people, you have to remember how many people come in and out of a facility every day. Casting back to where we were, what we knew in you know June and July when we were negotiating um, at the time, CDC said there were really two big things, or really three big things that that would help stop the spread. Um, you know, distancing, like you and I learned about then, uh, mask wearing at all times, and also um, you know sanitation, so surface spread of the pathogen. So. Those three things were part of the agreement, uh, and they were, you know, pretty important parts. So everyone who was inside was guaranteed uh, a mask. or they, they would get two masks. So they could trade them in if they were clean or, uh, you know, if they were dirty or they were damaged. Um, and they were also given cleaning supplies because, we, you know, the stories we were hearing were just horrible, that um, people were living in in um cells that they weren't allowed to clean and certainly the prison wasn't cleaning for them and then testing was important testing you know wasn't happening and so we were very desperate to try to get that into place and you know of course since then we've learned that the sanitation part you know the kind of hygiene part is important but it's not as uh life and death as you know mask wearing for example so our our knowledge has expanded a little bit about the pathogen um and testing in DOC started, you know, under the agreement they were required to do one round of testing. Um, and DOC has done subsequent rounds of testing after that and, and says, I mean, we'll see if this happens, says that they're going to move to a system in which they test uh, once every two weeks, which is, you know, p- part of the answer. The other half is what do you do when you find people who have become infected? You know, you have to make sure that, you're figuring out who they're in contact with and stopping the spread. But at any rate, the the mask wearing and the sanitation were were big parts of it. They're very important. Um, And, you know, largely we had compliance on getting masks to incarcerated people. um, But the problem we saw over the course of, you know, from July to December was that it was a real struggle to get DOC employees to consistently wear their masks. And so, at, you know, in some units and some facilities, there was good compliance, but it seemed to really depend on kind of the time of the day, the shift, and who was involved. But we definitely had a lot of reports of um, employees who just wouldn't wear their masks. I think you saw that reflected, if you read the headlines, uh, over how many DOC employees were infected with the virus. I was hundreds and hundreds of them.
0: Maybe that's is a good moment for you to describe exactly at this point. What we know about the infection rate for prisoners and for staff. How many prisoners do we know that are actually infected with the virus? You could give us a mortality rate as well, you know, since the virus started full force back in March and April. And then um, what is the policy, what is the strategy for infected prisoners at this point? I, I heard some talk about the fact that prisoners were being sent to a facility in northern Connecticut, try to isolate them all in one place like that. Another strategy was to put them into solitary confinement. But why don't we start with the uh, the numbers of prisoners that we know at this point that are infected and the numbers of staff that are infected.
1: Yeah, so so cumulative, so for, for the infection rate, if you're talking about a snapshot today, it depends on the facility. And and this is a pretty unscientific impression. But looking at the numbers, it seems to me that you've got a couple of facilities that are really having a hard time. That's Cheshire and York. Uh, York's the women's prison down in Niantic. Uh, and the first time around, those facilities weren't particularly hard hit, but now they are. I don't know the reason for that, but that seems to be what's happening. Um, and cumulatively, though, if you look across from when lockdown started in, in March, of course the population of incarcerated people turns over a fair bit, so it's not as if the same people have been in, you know, one-to-one the whole time. Um, but if you look at, you know, the population's been pretty consistent around, you know, maybe 9,200 people to 9,500 people uh, over that time, and, and it's about 2,500, Have gotten the disease so it's it's a staggering number of people who have come through the system and become ill and of them as you rightfully point out 16 have died uh Mm. so it it, it's an appalling situation the the deaths alone let alone the folks who got sick and suffered um you know who who were sick and and then had you know side effects or or lasting effects but uh, it's really remarkable that we've had that number of people die and you know, I think largely without the state government treating it as if it's a uh, a world changing emergency, which which it really is. It's it's almost unbelievable to have that number of people die on the state's watch.
0: Well, you know, it, it does seem almost sort of a parallel situation or an, an analog to the situation in nursing homes, where you have very tightly packed populations a staff that comes and goes is exposed to people who are highly vulnerable to the disease. And the state has been pretty aggressive about dealing with that situation. Off the top of your head, what is the failure here of somebody who has demonstrated compassion and a certain amount of competence dealing with the COVID situation in Connecticut? what's your best guess as to why nedelmont is 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 treating this situation so cavalierly
1: i don't know I, it's so i think the maximum i you know i, I don't know whether it's because um <clears throat> like a lot of people who to you know don't know any incarcerated people um you know whether he thinks well if you're sentenced to prison this kind of comes this comes along with it right we can we can treat you however we want certainly you know, anyone living in Connecticut who's read the newspapers in the last five years knows that medical care in prison is awful. And it's very difficult for, you know, politicians to get them to engage and understand that simply because a person has been sentenced to a term of incarceration doesn't mean that they have been sentenced to be medically neglected. And yet that's largely what uh, elected officials tend to think. So I don't know whether it's it's a lack of whether it's 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 a malicious sense that um, people get what they deserve when they go to prison, or it's a um, less malicious but nonetheless incredibly destructive lack of caring—I I don't know—but um, I do know that the government should understand that simply because you know when, when a person when it holds the person, uh, it is responsible for that person's medical care and well-being. You can't both. Have physical custody over a person pursuant to a sentence, and also decide that you don't feel like providing them with proper medical care or keeping them out of harm's way, and and so you know that that's it, it's a mystery to me. But I think the the bottom line is that uh, Connecticut's government, its leadership, and Governor Lamont have decided that it's it's okay or it's in some way acceptable for this outcome to have transpired. Otherwise, uh, they would be dropping everything they're doing and, and trying to prevent uh, another, you know, a single new infection, let alone another death.
0: This is one of those situations where it's sort of like the uh, government aid and government action usually go to the powerful and the wealthy and the well-positioned. And, as you go down the scale of on that sort of ladder of, of inf- power and influence, and you get down to the impoverished population and, and then at way down below that, the incarcerated population that population is regarded as expendable, it has no power. there are, are few political consequences for not taking action and maybe some consequences for actually taking action. It may be regarded that, you know, as you said, some people are not sympathetic to the incarcerated population, and they may think that's a waste of time and money and resources to deal with it. I just uh, suspect from the way that Lamont has been really avoiding this question, I'm shocked also at at the behavior of the Connecticut media and not holding his feet to the fire at the press conferences. Early on, back in the spring, there were questions directed about uh, the incarcerated population. Now I'm hearing less and less. What's your impression of the way the media is dealing with this?
1: Well, certain outlets are covering it pretty well and have asked, you know, have have done a lot of work and, and keep the spotlight on the prisons, which is great because I think a real danger in democracy is if we are happy to sentence people to incarceration but then effectively take our eyes off and think well if they if you go to you know if you're incarcerated you then sort of fall down a hole um, But you know so there has been some coverage you know the other thing that i think we should talk about when we talk about why the response or the sort of mystery about um, why the response has been so bad is we can't forget that as with a lot of things in connecticut we, we, we are also looking at a racialized system. So our, our DOC is 70% people of color. That's, that's, you know, Connecticut's population is not 70% people of color, and yet inside of the walls, seven out of 10 people are, are people of color. And that absolutely magnifies the lack of power and lack of resources that, that's happening.
0: We're speaking with Dan Barrett. He's the legal director for the Connecticut American Civil Liberties Union, who has been uh, really waging this battle since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis back in uh, the early spring. And uh, the battle goes on. So can you just give us a sense of the lack of compliance? like? What is the state failing to do? What are Lamont and, and the director of corrections failing to do at this point? And how are you keeping track of that? Like how, how, how do you know when they are not doing what they're supposed to do based on that settlement agreement that was arrived at in, on July 20th, 2020?
1: Well, during the settlement agreement prior to its expiration, we were in contact with you know, our, our clients, our class members and their loved ones and their families uh and friends and so we had a lot of information and reports um and that's how we knew kind of what was going on especially with some of the problems we raised in in october november about um, the lack of masking now right now people you know thankfully people are still giving us um, reports and information you know we don't represent anyone now um but my sense is looking at the numbers and and looking at DOC's track record is that you're having the same problems. Um, and I say that because I suspect that if their um, mask wearing and sanitation and, and, and everything else was up to par, then you just wouldn't have the, the infection rate that you've got the outbreaks in a variety of facilities. I mean, if you look at, you look around our little state and you will see, um, You know, some of our private institutions like boarding schools, like, you know, prestigious universities and colleges, they had people back in congregate living situations and spared no expense and no effort to make sure that people were tested, they had all the gear they needed, and they weren't kept in close quarters. And lo and behold, they had very few infections. So, it's not a, at this point, I'm, you know, we're flying a little blind because we're, we're not in sort of daily conversation with our class members. But um, I think it's fair to say that if, if the numbers are saying that there are still people being infected and there are still deaths, then it's, it's not a, a tough leap to say that say, corners are being cut and th- things are being, um, you know, the, their eye is off the ball. and They're not, they're not doing what they need to be doing.
0: Can you talk about the monitoring panel that was set up by the settlement agreement? Uh, What was the purported work of that panel? How did they go about their business, and is their work still in progress? Are they still allowed to continue even though this uh, settlement agreement has expired as of December 31st?
1: Well, so they could, you know, if the Department of Correction and Governor Lamont wanted to, they could have the panel stick around and and give them access to files and facilities and the whole nine yards and have them continue. Uh, I don't know if they'll choose to do that, but they could. There's nothing preventing them. There's also at the moment, because the settlement has ended, nothing compelling um, Lamont to let them into facilities and to have access and see what's going on. So right now the panel, you know, there is no more panel. Um, And they they issued their second and uh, what I think is their last report this past week. And so, you know, it would be great. And we would have loved if they would, DOC would continue to allow them access. It just doesn't seem like DOC is going to do that.
0: What, what? Was the makeup of that panel? I mean, were, were there medical doctors on it? Were there?
1: Uh, yeah, so there were. There were three, so it was a five-member panel, and there were um, three physicians. There were uh, two members that were chosen by the plaintiffs. There were two members that were chosen by the defendants, and then the four uh, people that were chosen then chose a fifth. And so we ended up with um, uh, four medical doctors and uh, a warden, a DOC warden. And their job under the agreement was to visit facilities, to review documents, to talk with incarcerated people, to talk with staff, and to give feedback to the parties about two things. One, um, you know, the state of affairs inside the walls, and two, any developments in public health and and um, uh, in medical science that happened that may change the way that, that DOC and Governor Lamont were approaching um, how they treat COVID in prison. So, if there had been a big change in the way folks are supposed to be treated and things like that, they would keep keep everybody apprised of that. So, they, they produced a couple of reports. They they went to a number of facilities, talked with incarcerated people, talked to staff, um, and produced a couple of reports based on that. And I, th- I think you know the most notable and perhaps unsurprising portions of their reports were the conclusions about distancing. You know, this is something that that we we knew was very important at the outset, but that, uh, you know, a huge amount of infection can be avoided if people are simply spread out. And that has not happened at DOC facilities, even though here in Connecticut, we have uh, ample space and a ton of staff. So that to me is one of the big takeaways from their work. Could there be
0: enough distancing that you believe is required, and medical science backs that up, in the facilities as they stand now, or is the initial plank in in your lawsuit, which was to decarcerate a good portion, possibly up to a third, I think, of the population, is that really the solution here? Or is there a way for social distancing to occur in the prisons as they now are populated?
1: So, it, it, there, you know, the the... the is it possible question in the prisons as they're now populated depends a little bit on the facility. So there are certain places where it's very possible to spread people out. There's certain places where we know it's a terrible idea to hold human beings right now. Those are the dormitory settings and there's certain places where it would be a little tough to spread people. But the overarching question about um, system-wide, I think, you're looking at you have to look at fewer people in the system so that right now prison is a very dangerous place to be because of covid it's always a very dangerous place and it's typically the least healthy place for a person to be in connecticut but during covid it's even more important that people be kept out of harm's way by being kept out of prison and so in, in connecticut you know our governor has a pretty powerful set of tools to release people from prison, and, and he's declined to use those at all. the the decline in the prison population has largely been driven by the fact that fewer people are going in. And as a result, as, as the pandemic has gone on, there's been fewer and fewer people inside the walls, which is great, but it's only part of the story. You know, because they shut off the tap of people going in, that means there is you know, there's fewer people inside. There's a little more room to work with. But mm-hmm. the other half of the equation is um, the people who were in when the pandemic started and the people who remain in. We have to find ways of getting them clear of the danger.
0: So, Dan, in our remaining minute or two, what needs to be done right now, immediately, to protect the lives of incarcerated people as a discrete group, but also of, of the staff who come and go into in the prisons and the contractors, as you mentioned, who bring Pot- the potential of spreading this virus into the outside communities what what do we need to have happen tomorrow
1: well I think there's kind of there's three things happening in parallel uh, that that are imperative. the first is get everyone vaccinated uh, as fast as possible also while that 's happening, um, get as many people out as possible because you know, even if vaccination happens very quickly, we're still pretty much talking about late summer, early fall, if we're lucky. And so if you wanna protect people to the maximal degree, you really have to get them away from that situation. Um, as, you know, you saw earlier in the summer, the state was emptying out certain nursing homes and saying, look, this is too dense, you can't be here, there's too many infections. Well, it's gotta do the same thing with the prison system. So if, if you want a surefire way to prevent infections, you're gonna pe- keep people away from that system. Um, th- those those are the two things that, that uh, the governor really needs to focus on.
0: Are prisoners at this time at the head of the line in terms of receiving the vaccine?
1: So I, I was very encouraged the other day when, uh, I, I think it was early last week, Governor Lamont had a press conference, and he was asked what he was going to do about incarcerated people. And he repeated several times over in a way that made me think he's, take him at his word, that he was going to adhere to the vaccine panel's recommendations. And that panel, as you recall, recommended that incarcerated people and staff be in 1B, Um, so pretty high up the list, which makes all the medical sense in the world they're being held in such close quarters. So um, given that, I'm encouraged uh, that Governor Lamont says he's going to adhere to that recommendation. And, you know, my fingers are crossed that this happens just as quickly as is possible.
0: Well, we certainly hope so. And it has been very illuminating to speak with you again, uh, Dan Barrett, Legal Director of the Connecticut ACLU. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll uh, keep our fingers crossed and watch this situation, call you again for updates, and uh, hope that the media uh, covers it a little more uh, intensely and a little more uh, consistently as we try to put some pressure on our state government and to try to get the situation back to where it should be. So thank you so much, Dan Barrett, for joining us today on Mic Check.
1: Well, thanks for bringing light to the situation. Really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right. My name is Richard Hill. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour starting in just a moment. This is WPKN Bridgeport 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org.